You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com Welcome back to The Corbett Report, ladies and gentlemen. I'm your host, as always, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, coming to you from the sunny climes of Western Japan on the 28th of September, 2015, with a new edition of the Questions for Corbett podcast series, that podcast where you send in your questions and I mispronounce your name. And as always, there's a bajillion ways to get your questions in. Probably the best way is to leave your question on the comments of the previous Questions for Corbett video, not on YouTube, on CorbettReport.com. If you are a CorbettReport.com member, sign into the website and leave your question in the previous QFC post. But there are other ways to send in your comments besides. A lot of people send in questions via my contact form, either by sending me an email or by uh, leaving an audio message via the SpeakPipe application. You can, of course, tweet me your questions with hashtag QFC or any other method you like. Uh, I always suggest using a video sharing platform like YouTube or Vimeo or what have you to send in a video question, but I think it's been like a year and a half since we had a video question, so... Oh well. Anyway, um, as I say, lots of different ways to get me your question. However you do so, I will attempt my best to try to answer it, but as always, there are way, way, way too many questions to answer them all, so I have whittled it down to the handful that I think we can answer and tackle and chew in this particular edition of QFC. As always, links to everything I talk about will be in the show notes for this episode at CorbettReport.com. Let's get straight into it today. Uh, First of all, thank you to all of those people who took their time to uh, send me a nice message when I announced that I was a little bit under the weather this past weekend. I do appreciate it. I did spend a couple of days in bed, but I am 80 to 90% better now, so so that seems to be all uh, done and dusted. Thank you again for your kind words and your support during that time. And also on the note of Questions for Corbett. My apologies for the visual errors in last month's edition of this series. You will have noticed that there were some major errors going on with the, uh, the, the, the type on the text on the screen. Uh, for those watching the video version of this podcast, you'll notice the text didn't line up at all with what I was actually reading. There were some problems. I've recently switched from Final Cut Pro to Premiere. Adobe Premiere is my video editing uh, program, and I was still working out some of the kinks there, obviously. Thanks to those who pointed that out. I did attempt to smooth that over with some uh, patches on the YouTube version uh, via annotations, and I did actually change it around for the MP4 version on my website, but people who saw the original version would have noticed those errors, including Budaforce, who was very quick off the bat with a comment on the previous QFC, noting that there were some visual errors in that episode. Uh, Hopefully that will be ironed out this time. Uh, Speaking of Budaforce and speaking of questions from the previous QFC post, uh, he leaves a very good rhetorical question on the previous QFC. Could you think of a better way to collect biometric data from people than the selfie? A very good self-answering rhetorical question. Yeah, no, obviously that's a very good way to collect a very large sample of people's facial, uh, uh, digital facial data. Um, putting it into the matrix themselves, Facebook, Twitter, all these things. Hey, look at me. Look, I'm in a new location. Here's all of my data. Here's where I physically am located and all of that info. Um, Of course, it is being scooped up. It is being analyzed. It is being put into the sentient world simulation and who knows what else they have uh, of literal digital created artifacts of you out there in the digital ether. So, Yeah, I think it's interesting that this is a phenomenon, and again, whether it's a completely spontaneous social phenomenon or one that's 
prodded along and directed by powers that shouldn't be at any rate, it is interesting that it does line up very well with a total surveillance society, doesn't it? Okay, next, uh, also on that previous QFC, we had another question, this one from JP. Have you ever found yourself questioning your opinion on topics like JFK or 9-11? Are there times when you think, maybe I got this all wrong and fell down some crazy rabbit hole I can't crawl out of? A uh, very good question. Of course, the answer is yes. I mean, anyone who is looking at this ma subject matter honestly will be able to admit to themselves to say, like the you know the wise uh, of Socrates, no, the wise man knows that he knows nothing. Well, I think once you've been looking at these black operations and all of this craziness that goes on, I think anyone who's looking at it honestly will know there are. A million different ways this could have gone down and different things that could have been happening behind the scenes and who knows what layers of the onion we're missing entirely because we don't have access to those layers, etc. So yes, I mean, I think we all should have some humility when it comes to our reasoning on a lot of these things. That's not to say that I think, I, I mean, certainly there are certain bedrocks that I, I think I can fall back on, that the official 9-11 story is completely bogus, that the official JFK lone nut theory is bogus. But in what way is it bogus, and on what levels, and who is manipulating what, and are there agendas underneath the agendas, etc. And there's always, always, always room for doubt and self-questioning there, and we should remain that. Unless you were part of the operation, you do not 100% for certain know how it went down. And uh, to think anything less is hubris, and I wouldn't trust anyone who claimed anything more than that. Um, so always keep some some room for humility in our theses. And just as one example, I'll point to the OKC bombing. I mean, again, there's government involvement all over that bombing, as I hope I demonstrated in my Secret Life of Timothy McVeigh podcastumentary earlier this year. But I was remarking to myself, even as I was putting that episode together, that I have no idea exactly how it went down and who was where and what exactly happened at every moment. But how interesting it would have been to have been a fly on the wall in those years preceding and running up to that event, just following Timothy McVeigh around. And I have no doubt that if I was such a fly on the wall, there would be incidents, there would be characters, there would be events going on that even from uh, from McVeigh's perspective, even if he was a completely witting uh, agent in what was happening in the sense that he knew, I'm sure there were levels and layers above him that he didn't know. Uh, just as anyone involved in that plot was probably only compartmentalized and only knew little bits of it. So there'd always be moments of aporia where you just have to scratch your head and say, I wonder what that was about. And, th and it would be so fascinating to really have that perspective. But anyway, the short answer is yes, I think we need humility when it comes to things like these, and we should always question our assumptions. Moving along to Twitter, we had a question in from at GrownMNG. Uh, sorry if, again for the mispronunciation. Don't you think the European GMO bans are only temporary until TTIP will kick into full effect? Uh, yes, I mean, short answer, yes. And this relates back to uh, some uh, a video or two that I did a while ago talking about the Scotland GMO ban and other European Union uh, countries that are now starting to in enact their right to assert their own sovereignty on the GMO issue, um, as opposed to the European sort of overall blanket approval or disapproval of various GMOs. Uh, so Scotland has banned the planting of GMOs. But uh, yes, I mean, the point is that the ultimate answer, the ultimate solution to this is not government-level bans, because th just as a government can come along and ban something, a government can come along and make it perfectly okay. The next government to get into power can completely reverse that decision. If we leave it in the hands of government, 
I mean, that's not a solution at all. That's just maybe at best a temporary bulwark. And as you say, there are these TTIP deals and things that can undermine whatever kind of national, say, may or may not um, actually be trying to oppose this agenda. Although, if you ask the European Commission, uh, they have a FAQ on the TTIP that specifically says, will the TTIP undermine uh, EU countries' rights uh, to to ban GMOs? And it says, absolutely not. This will not affect, you know, European uh, Food Safety uh, Association standards at all. Blah, 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 take that for what it's worth. But yes, no, the ultimate point is no, the answer will not come from government. The ultimate answer comes from the people. Uh, A, through assertion of economic rights, uh, simply not buying, not producing, not uh, consuming, not participating in economic relationships with the companies that produce these things. And that involves actual work of informing yourself what companies exist and what ties there are and what percentage of GMOs are in what products, which is an awful lot of work. But again, if we don't do it, no no politician is going to come down from heaven and hand it to you on a silver platter. It will involve work. The other part of that solution, of course, is civil disobedience. And that's been one of the, uh, the, the steadfast uh, things that have been applied in European example. And there's been a lot of activism on that front in Europe to the point where certain successes have been run. BASF was run out of Germany because, again, there's crop after crop in test crops in different fields in different places were destroyed overnight by activists. Well, I'm not, of course, advocating anyone do anything illegal that they want to be thrown in jail for. But civil disobedience has been and will be a con- uh, an effective tool in this fight. Next, we have Josh, uh, who says, James Attached is a letter I literally just opened up. What should you think and believe if you, what would you think and believe if you received this? And the letter, I'll show you the image here on the screen for those watching the video. Uh, In the next few weeks, all homes and businesses within 10 kilometers of nuclear facilities will be receiving a package of potassium iodide pills in the mail. Your home or business will be one of them. And then it says, in the very unlikely event of a nuclear emergency, potassium iodide pills would help prevent the development of thyroid cancer and are especially effective at safeguarding children's thyroid glands. Blah, blah, blah. This is from the Commissioner and Medical Officer of Health and the Medical Officer of Health of uh, Durham Region in the city of Toronto. So, interesting indeed. And this relates back to a law that was passed last year. I'll throw the link in the show notes for those who are interested. But yes, the uh, basically the Canadian Nuclear Reg- Reg- uh, Safety Commission passed a new law saying that by December of 2015, anyone within 10 kilometers of a nuclear power plant will have to have this emergency uh, potassium iodide distributed directly to them to have on hand in the event of a nuclear emergency. And the basic point of this is that in the event of a major nuclear meltdown, big spread of radioactive material into the atmosphere, the first thing that will hit is the iodine-131, which will be sucked up into your thyroid if your thyroid is not already full of iodine, which is why you take potassium iodine in that event to fill up your thyroid with the healthy non-radioactive iodine and uh, for the first few days where that iodine-131 is going to be the... uh, the primary uh, isotope floating around, um, exactly in, as in Chernobyl and Fukushima and these other major disasters. So that's that's what this is about. And 
ultimately, yes, you do want potassium iodide in the event of such an emergency so that you can do exactly that. Although you should be very careful with this because, again, if you take too much of this, if you take... Uh, if you take it too regularly, if you're uh, if you're taking this when you don't need it, it can have all sorts of side effects, including in newborn infants, it can cause hypothyroidism. It can also cause a bunch of problems with your thyroid if you are taking too much, if you're taking it too often. So um, again, this is for emergency situations in the immediate wake of a meltdown. Uh, but I think the real take home from this is if you're in, within 10 kilometers of a nuclear power plant, you might want to think of moving outside of that range preferably comfortably outside of that range, maybe even 50 kilometers, maybe even 100, if you can manage it. Yes, uh, and there have been some surprise revelations of nuclear facilities in in uh, the Ontario uh, region that I think we covered on a previous QFC, if I do recall correctly. I'll throw in some links about that. Um, so people who didn't know you were in within range of a nuclear facility, well, this will be a nice uh, wake-up call and maybe a, a sign that you should get out of the area. Um, and just as a side note, I believe the CDC in the U.S. recommends uh, or actually mandates the potassium iodide pills within 10 miles of all nuclear facilities, which means 16 kilometers. So the CDC has more stringent standards than the Canadian uh, National Nuclear Safety Commission, interestingly. Thank you for that, Josh. Let's move along to Megan, who writes, I've heard and read for years that the U.S. was attacking and invading the Middle East to get their oil. Of course, the U.S. has been buying oil for Saudi Arabia and I guess other places over there. What I don't get is why the oil over there for the big oil companies would be a reason to be there given how much oil is available in the U.S. I know the environmentalists have prevented a lot of drilling and fracking, so is the U.S. pandering to the environmentalists by buying from the Middle East instead of producing what they already have? The simple two-word answer to this conundrum or seeming conundrum is artificial scarcity. And for a greater elaboration of this idea and how it functions and how it relates specifically to oil as well as other commodities and other things, uh, please look at episode 191 of the Corbett Report, How to Spin Gold from Straw, where just like Rumpelstiltskin taking that worthless straw and making valuable gold out of it, or you know, desired gold out of it, so too can companies or corporations or oligopolies or oligarchs take something that is not all that valuable, not all that scarce, make it scarce artificially, and thus drive up the price. That's, of course, exactly how the diamond cartel functions, by taking a semi-precious stone that is not all that rare and strictly controlling the, the mining and the, the, the access to the, that, uh, those stones and the distribution and sale of those stones around the world, strictly controlling that so that it becomes scarce, so that it drives up the price. And of course, the high price then feeds into this perception of value, which feeds on itself. It's a feedback mechanism that has worked very well for the De Beers and all of those uh, similar oligarch uh, institutions for, well, very long time. Of course, in the diamond case, over a century, and in the case of other commodities, for centuries and centuries. It's long been known this is how it works. This is, of course, how the oligopoly works as well. The real value of the oil is in the perception of the scarcity of the oil. So peak oil plays exactly into the oligopoly. Uh, that's why it actually came from Shell, uh, the Shell researcher, uh, uh, King M. King Hubbard. And that's why they continue to propound that myth. Uh, that's why uh, the wars for oil in the Middle East has always been about control of the oil, not so that it can be unlimited pumped out of the ground, but so that it can be controlled exactly as OPEC is designed to do, control the amount that's coming out of the ground rather than making it freely available. So 
There's a lot to say about this. I will, hopefully in the near future, I'm not going to get your hopes up with a time frame here, but in the near future, I do plan to go into more depth on the oligopoly, how it functions, artificial scarcity, all of that. But yes, I mean, I think when we look at the example of the US, there are people like Lindsay Williams who claim there's enough oil in Prudhoe Bay up in Alaska uh, to fuel the U.S. for over a century or whatever the specific claim is. I don't know specifically about that claim, but I it, let's put it this way. It would not surprise me in the least if such claims were in fact true, if all of the oil that America could feasibly need for the next several generations is already there, but is being kept in the ground as part of a scheme to keep the perceived value of oil up. Now, clearly that's reversed in the past year. We've seen oil crash back down, which is part of a stratagem to target certain countries that are in the crosshairs of the State Department, like Russia and Venezuela and other countries that also heavily rely on oil for their budgets. Um, Saudi Arabia does too, but they have large reserves that they can use to play that game for a very long time. So it's all part of a stratagem. And yes, it's all part of manipulation. All right. Well, more to say, but as I say, there will be future podcast episodes on that. Let's move along to the next question in from Alf, which may or may not be the 1980s sitcom character. What was his name? Gordon Shumway or something. Anyway, Alf writes, why do you believe this scene was cut out from Star Wars? Anakin, this afternoon, the Senate is going to call on me to take direct control of the Jedi Council. The Senate is too unfocused to conduct a war. This will bring a quick end to things. I agree. But the Council may not see it that way. There are times when we must all endure adjustments to the Constitution in the name of security. With all due respect, sir, the Council is in no mood for more constitutional amendments. Thank you, my friend. But in this case, I have no choice. This war must be won. Everyone will agree on that. An interesting little piece of the plot, isn't it, Alf? Well, I would like to say this was cut from the movie because it's a boring, clunky piece of expository dialogue with all the cinematic quality of a ham sandwich, but if I were to say that, then the entire prequel trilogy would never have been made, would it? No, I think this was probably not cut as some sort of censorship of the, you know, too, they went too far in revealing too much of the truth of our political reality, so much as it was timing and pacing and other such limitations, because I think that idea of the suspension of constitutional rights and how a, how a, a, a republic becomes an empire and that transition was really at the heart of the, the prequels uh, trilogy. So I think, especially in the second and third episodes, we, we definitely saw that uh, developed in a lot of different ways. So I don't think this is necessarily a part that was hidden away from the public. I think, again, it's, uh, it's reflected in a lot of different ways, like the, uh, oh, so this is how a republic dies, to thunderous applause when uh, the emperor unmasks himself and starts to, you know, oh, we have a galactic empire now and everyone's applauding, yay. Or, of course, in that scene that I believe I had the chance to point out in episode 14, 16, 14 of the Corbett Report, where uh, Obi uh, Anakin observes to Obi-Wan, you're either with us or against us, and Obi-Wan rejoins, uh, only Sith steal in absolutes which is an absolute itself for those keeping track at home. But anyway, uh, and, which is clearly a reflection of Bush's, you're either with us or you're with the terrorists. I mean, these movies are clearly a product of 
its time in the early 2000s, the beginning part of the Bush presidency, the war on terror, all of that. I think this was quite obviously meant to be sort of a parallel of that. And it uh, dovetailed in a number of different ways. This is this deleted scene is just one more aspect of that. Um, now, I guess there are a couple of different ways to read this. Maybe, you know, George Lucas is super clued in and really trying to warn people about uh, the war on terror and things, which to a certain extent may be true, but... Eh. Well, I do know that Jordan Maxwell, uh, a.k.a. Russell Pine, is, uh, is actually his real name. He took the name Jordan Maxwell from a Helena Blavatsky book, The Theosophist, uh, in Nexus in with Crowley and all those types of figures. And that's a whole other story into itself. But anyway, Jordan Maxwell, quote-unquote, likes to flash a picture of himself with Michael Eisner and George Lucas hanging around as if, you know, maybe he had some input into the Star Wars series. But this, uh, I think this picture looks like it's from the... 80s, maybe somewhere around that time frame. So who knows what the current situation is? Who knows if he was just at some event where they were all together and he got a picture? I don't know. I mean, who really knows with Jordan Maxwell? But uh, yeah, I guess there's the indication that George Lucas may be clued in on certain things, but I don't really look for any real truths to be revealed from George Lucas, uh, especially given the amount of time he's had and the amount of power and clout and money he's had to try to expose something more significant that I have not seen in really many of his works. Although his, uh, his earliest uh, film, his student art day film, uh, THX, what is it, 1139, was, was an interesting film and perhaps a candidate for film literature in, literature in the New World Order, more so than Star Wars, which would be a bit obvious. I think uh, THX 1139 is an interesting movie and one about very much apropos to FL and WO type matters with the struggle of the human spirit against the oppressive forces of tyrannical control. So perhaps we'll talk about that more in the future in some of George Lucas's connections and what he may or may not know. But ultimately, no, I don't, I don't imagine this scene in particular was cut for any particular political purpose. I think, again, I think that political theme is very much woven out through, throughout that, that prequel trilogy. Uh, let's move on to Theo, Theo, who writes, While undoubtedly the CFR is headed by secret society members and the Dulles brothers were heavily involved with the CFR, is there evidence of their involvement with other secret societies, particularly with regard to their time at university? Additionally, is the CIA itself a secret society, given that universities such as Yale and Princeton, which have notorious secret societies like Skull and Bones, are Quill and Dagger, and are known CIA recruiting grounds. Okay, uh, to answer the first part of the question, the Dulles brothers, well, I know that uh, Alan Dulles was at least alleged by many sources and repeatedly, so I think there's something to it, uh, to have been uh, Knight of Malta and Nexus into that, the, the sort of Catholic side of the conspiracy, if we can call it that, when that relates to his time in Bern, Switzerland, and Nexus in with the papacy, the Jesuits, the, the, the Swiss connection there. Um, and that's further elaborated by his nephew, Avery Dulles, who became a cardinal and a high-ranking Jesuit priest. So there you go. Um, uh, as regards to their university connections, I haven't found anything in particular about their secret society connections. Uh, I know Alan Dulles went to Princeton. I can't find anything regarding his secret society connections there. If anyone has anything to add, please do add it in the comments. Uh, uh, but yes, I mean, is the CIA a secret? I mean, I've, I think I've made this point explicitly before. I don't remember in which podcast I made it, but I 
quite explicitly elaborated, yes, the CIA is just an extension of the secret societies. It's a, it's a type of secret society. It's a modern update of the secret society. That's what intelligence agencies are. They're an outgrowth of these old secret societies that operate on the same principles and the same ideas. Basically, you have members who are sworn through various blood oaths and things and go through certain initiations of various sorts to make sure that they're the type who will keep secrets and take them to their grave. And that's what a lot of the Skull and Bones rituals are about. And of course, Skull and Bones heavily nexused in with the CIA. That's just one example, but one particularly interesting one. Yes, the CIA is infested with Yaleys and Yale men, and that's why the uh, Yale songs have become the CIA drinking songs and things of that nature, um, as has been attested by a number of sources. And if you just look specifically even at Skull and Bones and some of the more famous Skull and Bones CIA connections, there's the appropriately named William Sloan Coffin, the uh, ridiculously named Charles S. Whitehouse. Uh, you had William F. Buckley Jr., yes, not only of the National Review, but also, surprise, surprise, CIA. Also Skull and Bones. Uh, and of course, Poppy Bush, George W. George H.W. Bush, who of course went on to become director of the CIA, despite never having served for them in the 1950s. Zapata Oil? No, none of that was CIA, right? Nudge, nudge, wink, wink. So yes, uh, Skull and Bones, Yale, CIA, very much part of a nexus. And I don't think there's anything too surprising about that. I think we've uh, elaborated that in the past. Uh, I would direct you to, for example, the, uh, the previous uh, episode of this podcast series, not this podcast, or not Questions for Corbett, the flagship Corbett Report podcast on fleshing out skull and bones. All right, let's move on to William. If we are to believe that simple office fires caused complete structural failure of Building 7, then what, if any, changes have been implemented into insurance or building code for such buildings? It seems to me that we should consider these structures to be uh, uh, unsafe to work in or live in if they are prone to flatten themselves due to simple office fires. Yes. Yes, that's a good point. And in fact, a very simple one to make about one of the reasons why NIST, the NIST report should not be taken seriously as an explanation of WTC 7 or WTC 1 or 2. Their collapses, that is. Uh, this is a point that was made um, in the usual impeccably researched style of Kevin Ryan. Uh, you can find his article on this uh, from September 7th, 2012 on digwithin.net. Are tall buildings safer as a result of the NIST WTC reports? And as I say, this is another very well-researched, heavily footnoted work of Kevin Ryan that does deserve to be read in its entirety for anyone even remotely interested with this question. But the pull quote that we'll highlight here uh, Kevin Ryan writes, quote, Despite its grandiose claims, NIST knows that the building community has ignored the WTC investigation findings. That's clear from NIST's own tracking sheet on its website. This tracks all 30 recommendations from the NIST WTC investigation and lists the code outcomes from each. As of August 2011, the most recent update, not one NIST recommendation related to progressive global collapse, widely dislodged fireproofing, or linear thermal expansion has been adopted. And just to put that in even sharper perspective, the new WTC7 erected in 2006 itself was erected before these building code uh, recommendations were even made. So they didn't even wait for NIST to even pretend to conclude what had happened to the WTC or how to avoid it again. They just built a whole new building because it doesn't matter because that's not how the buildings really came down. So again, it's just little things like that that seem like little points, but actually have huge ramifications that never get looked into, never get explored by proponents of the official theory. So 
Again, it's a very good question. It's a nice insight, and it was covered, as I say, in the impeccable, usual style of Kevin Ryan. I will direct you once again to that article. Link in the show notes, as always. All right, let's move on to an audio question. Once again, you can leave your audio questions via the SpeakPipe application on CorbettReport.com's contact form, and this question comes from Olav. Dear James, we enjoy your show, have donated, and will contribute where relevant and possible. Your show, however, paints a pretty bleak picture for humanity in the medium long term. It irks my wife and leaves me feeling quite isolated when trying to discuss and forge a way out of this bad credit swollen, war-addicted climate disaster all waiting to happen. Our question is that, given that we have X amount of time left before one or more of these life-changing cataclysms comes bearing down upon us, effectively making our cash worthless, the planet completely unsafe, or a totalitarian tyranny only a breath away from becoming violent and extremely oppressive, what are we to do next, to expect in the next five years living in the UK? Are we doomed? Should we move to New Zealand now and dig in, leaving all the family and friends behind? It is very hard to discern a way through the cacophony of bad news and the advice to go run and hide. It has affected my marriage, and I just want to make my wife and family safe. Any take on this will be greatly appreciated. Love, Olav. Thank you very much for articulating this question, Olav. It is an extremely important one, although it is always disheartening to hear this question, because if there is anyone out there who places the Corbett Report amongst that cacophony of bad news and fear mongers and people screaming that the world is coming to an end and we're all going to die, then I have signally failed in my duty, or am signally failing in my primary duty here, which is to be a voice counter to that particular voice out there, which I'm sure everyone has heard. Uh, there's all sorts of different places you can go if all you're interested in is the fear porn aspects of all of this and disheartening bad news uh, nonstop. I, I try, I hope, I think that the Corbett Report is, or at least aspires to be something different than that. So it's disheartening to hear that that message isn't getting through. But let's, well, let's look at some of the, the different uh, responses to this. And I think the first thing to say is that I obviously, I cannot and will not and am unable to predict what things will look like in the next five years in the UK or anywhere else. But I would say that it is demonstrably true that regardless of what type of future may be coming, and even if it is the absolute worst that some people are proclaiming that it is going to a Mad Max scenario and, you know, hell on the streets, basically, within the next five years, as some people believe, or even, well, I guess uh, the Shemitah is a little bit late, but I'm sure it's coming any day now, right? Anyway, uh, th that type of fear-mongering, even if that does come true, and I think there are lots of different ways that the uh, changes that are coming can be brought about without that type of complete cataclysmic collapse. I think there are different um, scenarios of collapse than that one. But even if that did come true, it is still demonstrable that right now in this pocket of opportunity, we are aware of the types of changes that are coming and the things that are planned, but we have the space and opportunity to do something about them. So the future is not written yet. I don't want to sound like Terminator 2 here, but literally we can create the type of future that we want. And if we ever lose sight of that, then we might as well just go and and 
suck our thumbs in a corner because there's nothing else to do, right? We might as well just go get completely drunk off your head and forget who you are and why you exist because, oh, well, what are you going to do? No, obviously I don't believe that. I believe that we do have the space to act and interact and transact and work together to make a difference and to make a different future than the one we see coming. And we have that space and opportunity right now, so let's get to it. And for anyone who hasn't noticed... This is an essential part of my message that I keep coming back to time and time again. The things that we can do to take power and opportunity and all of these actions that we can do into our own hands. And just as one easy way into that, just go to the front page of corporatereport.com, go to the tag cloud and click the solutions tag or type solutions into the search engine. You'll get dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of podcasts, interviews, videos, articles that I've written and composed in the past on these types of subjects. For example, if you want to know how to fight back against the corporatocracy and how it tries to direct and control our lives, you can go to episode 275 of the Corporate Report, Solutions, Boycotts, and Bycotts. If you want to know how to get yourself off the industrial food chain that is poisoning us and uh, and the environment, go to Solutions Guerrilla Gardening. If you want to know how we can help to start to construct an alternative economy that can survive against whatever backlash and cataclysm they have planned for us, you can go to something like Solutions, the peer-to-peer economy. If you want to know how we can contribute to creating an alternative uh, to the internet structure that we know is surveilled and tracked and controlled eight ways from Sunday, you can go to episode 262, Solutions, Pirate Internet. If you want to know how to fight back against tyrannical legislation without participating in that ridiculous, uh, endlessly chasing the carrot on the end of the stick, Uh, game of politics, partisan politics, you can go to episode 289, Solutions Nullification. If you want to know more about alternative currencies and complementary currencies, I have different reports on that. If you want to talk about governmental surveillance and what we can do about it, you can go to episode 272, Solutions Surveillance. If you want to uh, talk about how you can set personal goals for yourself that can actually be a, a achieved, um, that, that actually change your life and this, the condi- material conditions of your life. You can go to my interview 996 with Anthony Gucciardi talking about how to change your life for good, etc., etc., etc. In fact, I made an entire video called Solutions, 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 just pointing out the different solutions uh, episodes and things that we've talked about before and how they can be used to change the situation we're in. That is the real point. Rather than just making predictions about, oh, in five years, we're all going to be here. We're all going to be doomed, whatever. The point is we are in a space where we can actually make changes to our lives. It's not easy. It's going to take some work, but it can be done and there are material changes that we can make that help to insulate us more and more from whatever system they're constructing from us for us and the point is the more we participate in them the more we build up these alternative structures the more of a community we have in place the less anything that they're doing on the outside directly affects us and that's an important point i mean real independence is an awful lot of hard work, but it is work that needs to be done. So that would be my answer, and I I hope it is not Pollyanna-ish. I don't want to give some rosy, oh, everything's going to be okay, because I don't know that. But I do know that if we don't do different things in our lives to change the system that we're in, especially now when we have the time and the space and the opportunity to do so, then might as well pack it in, because what else are we doing here? All right, obviously lots more to be said about that, but uh, you can continue following the solution series at corporatereport.com for more ideas about what you can do. Uh, Let's turn to Susan, who writes, "I I was wondering how you were able to expatriate to Japan. 
I can't recall if you were originally from Canada or the U.S. I'm from Canada. I'm in the U.S. and I'm researching the possibilities of expatriation. However, it seems doing so is very financially restrictive. If one doesn't already have a job lined up in the country they'd like to move to, that hasn't been filled by one of their current citizens first. The only other option is to buy your way in, and that usually requires 500k plus. Well, I can tell you uh, coming to Japan did not require 500k plus, and it doesn't for most of the people who come here via the English teacher route. And I don't know. I think there are... Well, I know in certain board, uh, boards of education that hire directly, there are age limits to that that sort of program. And I believe things like the NET program, which is uh, native English teachers and brings a lot of people to Japan, I think there's age limits to that. And so depending on your age, it can be very different as to how you can get into Japan specifically. Of course, every country has different laws and different programs and different ways that people can get in or out. And it depends what country you're coming from. I know it's different for uh, Australians to get work visas in Japan than it is for Canadians, etc., etc. So there's a bajillion different permutations here that I can't even begin to sort through for you. I can tell you that from my own personal experience, I did the whole teaching English in Japan thing. At the time when I came in 2004, I came with Nova, which was one of the biggest teaching companies here, and before it went bankrupt in 2007, whole other story. But anyway, I applied, I got the job. When I was in Canada, they helped prepare everything for me to move to Japan, so I had that job and they helped get me the work visa and uh, it didn't cost anything on my side. That was all arranged by the company. So there are opportunities like that, but again, it depends on your age, your situation, what country you're in, etc., etc. And on top of all that, people are always asking me about moving to foreign countries and should I do this, should I go here? I mean, it's such a huge decision to move to another country, let alone a country where you don't necessarily speak the language. I mean, I was young, dumb, and foolish enough to just, hey, I'm just going to go to another country, and it turned out to be a wonderful place that I wanted to stay for the rest of my life, but it's not often that that happens, as I'm sure you can imagine. I've seen a lot of people come here, dip their toe in the water for a year, and leave. I've seen people come here and dip their toe in the water for a couple of weeks and decide they didn't want to stay. So this is not a decision to be made lightly, and uh, obviously requires a lot of research before you do it. Unless you're young, dumb, and foolish like I was at the time, and everything just works out for you. <laughs> anyway... Um, Let's go to a Twitter question, at Miles of Truth. Hey James, did you see this? Any thoughts? I would value your opinion. And Miles of Truth links to a Zero Hedge article. Uh, suddenly, the Bank of Japan has an unexpected problem on its hands, talking about how the Bank of Japan uh, QE that they've been engaged in for the last couple of years under the Abenomics program here, it has been buying JGBs, Japanese government bonds, furiously. Uh, in fact, more furiously even than they're being produced, really. Uh, so that... As uh, Takuji Okubo from Japan Macro Advisors warned last year, the BOJ could end up owning half of the JGB market by as early as 2018. And uh, this is a year after that prediction. And yes, the BOJ is still on track to do that, to be not only the primary... Uh, a purchaser, but the majority purchaser of JGBs by 2018. And of course, at the time, Okubo warned that the BOJ is basically declaring that Japan will need to fix its long-term problems by 2018 or risk becoming a failed nation. That's a bit of a presumption. I think the BOJ and uh, the proponents of this QE infinity madness don't really care if the BOJ is outright monetizing the debt and outright buying 100% of JGB issues. It wouldn't matter to a lot of these proponents, the Krugmans of the world and uh, Keynesians of that ilk. Uh, but it does present some interesting 
corollaries and things that are going on behind the scenes. One of which is that the GPIF, the Government Pension Insurance Fund here in Japan, the largest government pension fund, the largest pension fund in the world, has been furiously selling off its JGB holdings to the BOJ uh, in order to get get into the stock market. That was part of what this uh, all this Abenomics madness is about, is getting the stock market kicked off, because that'll be the wealth trickle-down effect, and everything will be better, despite the fact that JD, uh, GDP is shrinking here in Japan, plus real wages continue to decline. Uh, it's a mess here in Japan that is not being solved by this monetization QE madness, but uh, anyway, it continues to go on and will continue to do so. I don't think they're going to hit that limit, that imaginary limit, like, oh no, the DOJ is now over half of the JGB market, you know, now it's officially a failed state. I don't think there will be a mark like that. I think, again, it comes down to ultimately cons- consumer confidence and the confidence of the people who are left holding the rest of the uh, uh, Japanese government debt, who are mostly Japanese citizens, who are mostly using it for funding retirements. So, uh, Again, I think Japan is going to continue doing this as long as they want to. Uh, That's a question of how long they will want to and when they will pull the rug on that. But uh, yeah, I I just I don't really ultimately agree with that that presumption or that assumption on Okubo's part. But yes, the phenomenon is very real. The BOJ is buying a greater and greater proportion of the JGBs that are being issued. And that's uh, that's only continuing, although they have held off on expanding their stimulus recently. So maybe they are starting to bump up against that wall of, uh, well, they won't have anything left to buy. So that, I, th- I take that to mean they'll just start buying other assets rather than just uh, bonds. But anyway, uh, Paul Six uh, leaves a comment on the last uh, uh, questions for Corbett video. I take it that you, James, see yourself close to the ideas of anarchism slash voluntarism. Um, well, yes, I would more identify with voluntarism for the problems that come with the overall umbrella term of anarchism. Anyway, so I'd like to know your take on the so-called minarchism, and I would appreciate if you could say something about your stance on property, allocation of property, and the enforcement or acceptance of congr- contractual obligations. Well, have you got a couple hundred hours? Because that's what it'll take to uh, start to sort through. Oh, okay, here's property. Well, uh, okay, a couple of things. First of all, minarchism, I'm clearly not an a pro- proponent of that because my anarchism Kistic, voluntaristic um, leanings are not based on any sort of utilitarian their, their uh, ethic. This is not some sort of what will what will lead to this happier world. It is a statement of principles. There are certain principles upon which I would base my moral system, one of which is that the only allowable interactions between adult human beings are voluntary ones, voluntary association. And just as an adjunct of that, oh yeah, all government is null and void. So that's where the voluntaristic principle comes in, and on that principle, minarchism, oh, the idea there's some kind of minimal state that can be allowed to take people's uh, money through taxation and distribute it as they see fit. No, there is not. That is not part of uh, true, that, that core principle upon which I would found my political moral philosophy. So, no, I don't allow for minarchism, and I don't care if it's slightly better of a gradation, even if it were to be possible to exist, which I don't think it is. Uh, And people point back to, well, if we could just go back to constitutional republic like the U.S. used to be. No, the constitutional republic that the U.S. used to be was immediately and 100% subverted by the very people who signed those documents, like Washington and the Whiskey Rebellion and that 
you know, that, that all of that nonsense that went on in the early part of the Republic that was just shades of what was to come. And whatever else you say about that um, original minarchist constitutional Republic that the U.S. supposedly was at some point, it has become the most behemoth, world-striding empire, empire ever known to humanity. So uh, clearly the, that Bill of Rights didn't protect you from anything. And now it's being eviscerated for the piece of paper that it is. So, mm, I'm not a minarchist. Uh, as for my stance on property, allocation of property, and the enforcement or acceptance of contractual obligations, again, as I say, that's a pretty big topic and not, not one that I think I'm at the end point of my exploration. I'm more towards the beginning point of my exploration. I would tentatively say that, yes, I think there are classes of objects that are not like others in the sense of being propertyizable, <laughs> to coin a term. Uh, there are certain things that I don't think are amenable to that idea of ownership in the sense that you can own in and destroy and use in whatever way you like as other things so that for example can you own a river can you own the air in the space above a certain patch of land can you own these things that are part of the natural environment and are subject to flux and are not clearly delimitable i would say there are huge problems in saying that you can and ones that i haven't seen properly um teased out by people who say that homesteading is the be-all and end-all of property. Um, having said that, again, I'm not at the end point of that exploration, so I'm speaking of the beginning point of that exploration. For people who haven't seen, I recently released the complete audiobook of uh, Jacques-Pierre Proudhon. <laughs> That's not his name, is it? Uh, what is property? The uh, the entire audiobook is now available, all 13 hours of it, for your listening pleasure. Um, available as high-quality 128kbps mp3s in different parts, or the entire thing in a lower-quality 32kbps. Available as part of the Well-Read Anarchist podcast series, and there will be a discussion on that book and its place in anarchist literature coming up shortly. So there's a lot more to be said about that. Again, that's just the beginning point of such an exploration, but a good place to begin to at least start to tease out the question of what is property. And on a slightly related note, we also had a question in from Olivier who wrote, by buying food for your three-year-old, you impose your choice of food on him. By defending your audio cables against his presumable assaults, you limit his freedom. Some aspects of parenthood seem to be at odds with the anarchist idea of nobody being anybody's boss. Have you ever tried to reconcile the anarchist principle with parenthood? When and at what point, in your opinion, does parental authority cease to exist? Well, that's an excellent question, a very important question, in some ways even more fundamental or at least very much related to that earlier question about property and contractual obligations, etc., and one that has a much greater impact on probably the future of humanity than most people would even think on first on first thought. And so there's a lot to be said. I won't try to say everything. I'll throw in some links to some different perspectives on this so that you can go and start reading and getting some ideas. Uh, for example, I'll throw in The Grayness of Children's Rights by Wendy McElroy, posted to dailyanarchist.com. I'll throw in Identity Check uh, and I'll and anok.blogspot.com, anarchist parenting, why discipline is so important. I'll throw in par uh, prior prioritizing kids in the anarchist community. Uh, what methods of child rearing do anarchists advocate? Again, these are just starting points of exploration. I'm not particularly advocating these viewpoints, but I do think that there is there's something embedded, in, an assumption embedded in the question there from Olivier, which is the idea that anarchist principles are against 
the idea of bosses of any sort. Well, again, that's, yeah, maybe in a certain stream, the, you know, original anarchists and the anarchist syndicalist and anarcho-socialist traditions of anarchism, etc., uh, I don't subscribe to those. That's, again, why I avoid the whole anarchist label, because I think it's much too broad an umbrella with too many contradictory things underneath it to be of any real value, value as a category. But uh, no, I don't think there is such a thing um, in my own principles and beliefs as, well, there should be no bosses of any sort. No, I think as long, again, as the relationship is voluntary, of course there can be hierarchies of that sort, and those are based on again, either voluntary association and or hopefully there's a difference between a hierarchy of ability and knowledge and a hierarchy of authority, as in you have to do what I say because you are now in this position. So having said that, I think that the children obviously do not have abilities that would allow themselves to be independent functioning human beings that mean that there has to be parental responsibility in there. And again, there's a lot of ways to argue this. You could go with Murray Rothbard and say that literally parents have zero actual positive obligation to do anything for their children. They shouldn't kick them, they shouldn't hurt them, they shouldn't kill them or, or deprive them of life, but they're not under any positive obligation to do anything for them. Feed them, clothe them, do anything. So they can let their children starve to death, and that's perfectly morally admissible. Almost no one, almost no one defends Rothbard on that position. Even Rothbard's most vociferous uh, defenders part ways with him on that one, and I think for obvious reasons. So I think this goes back to the question of parental responsibility, and I I certainly do think there is uh, an age at which children become adults in the sense that they are able to enter into knowledgeable and full partners in voluntary associations, in contractual associations with others. I think there is some age at which that takes place. Again, the state saying it's 18 years old or whatever may be an arbitrary number, but I think there is some age at which that happens. Maybe it's different for every child. But again, there is some age. And under that, I think the only obligation, the only person with any sort of obligation to do anything for the children would be the parents. I think that would be the original. And of course, they can maybe defer that by by adopting their children out or what have you. But at any rate, that obligation rests with those who created the life. But again, there's so much to tease out from this that I can't possibly do it justice here. And again, this is another part of the aspect of what we'll be discussing in the Well-Read Anarchist series. And there's many, many, many different thinkers who've had a lot to say over this. So again, I've thrown in those links to some of those articles, those overview type articles, to at least get you thinking along these lines. And there's lots of different responses in there. Of course, please add your own thoughts and ideas and opinions on this into the mix in the comment section of this Questions for Corbett. Moving right along. Mike asks, I show people your videos and others. There are comments, uh, their comments are that we are suggesting, what we are suggesting must have involved so many people, there surely would have been more whistleblowers. Can you help me answer that objection? Yes, I can. I'm glad you asked. I have a couple of different things on this. One is Meet the 9-11 Whistleblowers, which was a, a video that I did I think a long time ago, um, specifically, as the title says, on the 9-11 whistleblowers. And I also did an article a while back that I will throw again into the links in the show notes here called A Guide to the 9-11 Whistleblowers. Uh, This was from 2010, which started by saying, when losing a discussion of the facts of 9-11, a so-called 9-11 debunker will often rely on an old canard to prove that 9-11 could not have been an inside job. 
So many people want their quarter hour of fame that even the men in black couldn't squelch the squealers from spilling the beans, write self-satisfied defenders of the government's story. According to the logic of this argument, if there are no 9-11 whistleblowers, then 9-11 was not an inside job. So what if there are 9-11 whistleblowers? What if these whistleblowers come from every level of government and private industry, individuals who even had their cases vindicated by internal governmental reports? As you're about to see, there are numerous such whistleblowers, and each one is a thorn in the side of those who pretend that the 9-11 Commission represents the sum total of knowledge on the 9-11 attacks. So you can continue reading from there about some of those 9-11 whistleblowers and what their knowledge reveals about the, um, well, the impossibility of the official 9-11 fairy tale. Uh, so yes, there are 9-11 whistleblowers, and that fact blows that objection out of the water, but it's interesting that most people don't know about any of the 9-11 whistleblowers, and they are not paraded around, as they should be um, more, uh, and their cases scrutinized more closely. But we would not expect that from the mainstream media, would we? All right, uh, let's move along to a question from uh, QFC, uh, from Corbett Report member, Candide Schmiles, who wrote in by email, Julian Assange has been trapped in the Ecuadorian embassy for over three years now. As a fellow journalist, do you have any comments to make on his plight? Well, nothing other than the obvious. I mean, I think regardless of what you think about Assange and WikiLeaks and... uh, I mean, personally, I think there's the most generous you can say is that it's the type of organization that can and has been used to seed government and uh, propaganda in various nefarious ways. Like, oh, the Afghan war logs, they must be full of such rich and important and well, information the government doesn't want you to read it. They're propagandized, uh, heavily censored and, and already beginning to, to sow the seeds of war, war lies in the war logs. Oh, they don't want you to read this. It's so secret. Only WikiLeaks will release it, and then it gets this sort of mystique to it. So I think WikiLeaks puts a little mystique on official government propaganda in in cases like that. And uh, very little of actual intelligence comes out of it, but a lot of government propaganda gets imprinted in the public imagination because of things like that. So I think WikiLeaks, I mean, clearly is not some saviors of, uh, you know, journalism or what have you. But Having said that, regardless, it doesn't even matter whatever you think of Assange and WikiLeaks. Of course, no one should ever be hounded down and and forced to you know hide away in an embassy for years. I think it's all part of a, a theater to show us specifically what it looks like to hunt a man down. I made this point at the time when Assange was on the run and they were shutting down the WikiLeaks donations and things like that through PayPal. I was saying this is a giant sort of psyop spectacle to show people what this international manhunt looks like and what can be done and affected in this internet age to even the most savvy, you know, cyber criminals or cyber activists or whatever, you can be hunted down and you will be in sort of this live big spectacle fashion so that everyone can see, don't do this, don't run away, don't try to do anything against the authorities. And I think that's that's the main message of this. And that's the main message of Assange hiding away in the Ecuadorian embassy for years and growing a caveman beard. Uh, is exactly that, so that we can see the results of this, you know, life of trying to resist. And uh, so obviously that's ridiculous. It has to be resisted. Um, just the uh, the idea of that has to be resisted. And, you know, I don't think, again, I don't think Assange is going to be the ultimate person we should look to for that voice of how best to resist that, because I think at best he's an unwitting dupe and probably more likely involved in the actual dissemination of misinformation. But anyway, yes, 
I mean, clearly, journalists should not be hunted down and forced to live in an embassy if that's the response you're looking for. If not, let me know in the comments. Um, next, we have Russ. The reason I am writing to you again is because I am wondering what the best arguments and source documents are to make the case that the socialist creep uh, Bernie Sanders is a bad idea. I am in a democratic blue state and... Isn't democratic red state? No, blue state. Oh, I don't know. You Americans have it backwards. In Canada, it's red left, blue right. So I guess the other way around. Whatever. Are, and there are uh, Bernie supporters all around me. How do I effectively make a case for free markets and small government in this environment? <laughs> yeah, good question. I mean, I guess the question is, if this is a question of strategy, how do you show people who are very much wedded into the big state, you know, left socialist arguments how, you know, that's wrongheaded. Well, that's a question of strategy, and there's a lot of personal psychology that goes into that, and it's a lot of case-by-case -case basis, etc. So I'm not going to get into that. But why is Bernie wrong? I mean, that's an important question. And, uh, well, if you're a Tom Woods uh, fan, you'll notice that he has recently released a free book, Why Bernie Sanders is Wrong, but Why Bernie is Wrong, at whybernieiswrongis.com. Bernieiswrong.com. So that link will be in the show notes if you want to check that out. Or uh, I've got, I got a, uh, I mean, there's lots of different articles you can find on this. I found one that just has a lot of good links to other articles anyway, uh, from A Little Rebellion, Bitcoin, Bourbon, Blasphemer of Statism, Decentralize Everything, to get you, let you know what perspective this uh, article is coming from. But in this article uh, at A Little Rebellion, Bernie Sanders, Warmonger, Nationalist, and Xenophobe, it talks about some of the well, the parts, the parts of the Bernie Sanders story that don't get a lot of attention. For example, Howard Lisnoff at Counterpunch details Sanders' pro-war voting record, revealing that Sanders voted with Democrats almost 98% of the time. 98%! When Bill Clinton was committing mass murder in the Balkans, Sanders played the part of the party loyalist, gangster, and defender of the war machine. Uh, gives a pull quote from that article. On Afghanistan and Iraq, Sanders may have had some minor quips with how the war was being waged, but made sure that they were fully funded and supported. For example, in 2001, uh, Sanders did not support the vote in Congress to oppose the war in Afghanistan. Uh, Congressman, Congresswoman Barbara Lee stood alone. Uh, this vote was followed by his support for appropriations to support both the war in Afghanistan and Iraq. Uh, also on Israel, Sanders might as well be Hillary Clinton or Marco Rubio. Sanders, like his Democratic allies, has supported Israel's aggressive Middle East policies against Palestinian statehood. He supported H.R. 282, the Iran Freedom Support Act. <laughs> Iran Freedom Support. Which was similar to the resolutions leading to the Iraq War. Indeed, it appears that Sanders is even to the political right of many liberal Democrats. So, again, some problematic things for the supporters of Sanders, who will no doubt come back and say, but he's so good on X, Y, and Z, so we have to support him. Ugh, ugh. Anyway, so again, it's a question of strategy. How do you reach out to particular people who are in particular parts of the political spectrum? And I can't help you with the strategy part of it, but there's a lot of different pieces of the, the why Bernie is wrong puzzle. And again, I'll throw some links in the show notes. Okay, finally, we're going to turn it over to you, the questions for you part of this podcast, where I throw some questions out there and invite your responses, because I think I'd like to throw this, as with every part of this, please contribute what you can and uh, how you can to the comments in the comment thread. But let's throw out some questions for all of you guys out there. Uh, we have one in from Jean or Jean, depending. Uh, you talked about maybe wanting to start a small garden this summer. Did you do it? And were you able to reap anything? I have a small balcony garden, but just can't find the time to collect all the seeds from my plants. Thank you very much for the question. Yes, I stand guilty. Guilty as charged. I have not 
I did not take the time to plant that garden this summer. I was busy. I know, I can make a bajillion excuses, and I have them, trust me, but uh, the ultimate truth is, no, I didn't ultimately start my little backyard garden, and I'm quite ashamed of that. It's late September, it's almost October now, so I still want to do this by the end of the year, so I'm going to throw it out to you guys out there. What should I plant at this stage of the game? Hopefully a house plant, maybe a mint or something that'll grow in a house plant in the windowsill that I can at least say I grew something this year. I know it's a cop-out, but I want to do something. I really do. I truly do. So please, your opinions on what I should grow at this stage of the game, greatly appreciated. Also on the food uh, issue, Kevin had a large uh, email about nutrition and how nutrition experts uh, advice always changes every few years and is usually the opposite of what they were saying before he writes besides growing our own food and being wary of what we choose to nourish our families do you have any idea of where one can obtain open source dialogue about these issues i know this isn't and i'm very grateful it isn't your current field of expertise but after finally overcoming the apprehension of addressing the question to you i thought you mightn't think it too ridiculous a question to address because i remember you'd interviewed a brilliant nutritionist on corporatereport.com and while i don't remember his name I remember most of what he'd said. Would you please at least point me in his direction? Yes, I believe you're probably referring to Anthony Gucciardi, who we referred to earlier. If you check out Gucciardi and uh, his the interviews I've done with him in the past, you, I'm assuming that's who you're referring to with that nutritionist I've interviewed. Uh, but yes, your question, I think, is a good one. Are there any open source dialogues, places you can go for or open source dialogue on, for example, nutritional matters or health advice matters? I think that is an important question because I don't want to, especially with an exceptionally important point like your health, the health of yourself and your family, the most important fundamental bedrock things that you can get. I wouldn't want to go to any site that has a particular 100% this is the way it's done definitive view or at least not one of those. I'd like a hundred different competing ones so that I could choose uh, for myself and my family. But preferably, I would like a place where there is that space for dialogue, the back and forth, the open source sort of conversation about these issues. Is there a good forum of that sort online? Do you know of one? Do you participate in one? If so, where is it? link would be appreciated. Please leave it in the comments. That's uh, from Kevin. Thank you. Moving along, Randall has a question. John McCloy was called the chairman of the establishment, and many suggest that McCloy was succeeded by David Rockefeller. Is DR still the chairman, or has he been succeeded by someone? Given DR's age, Rockefeller's age, the question has some urgency. Yeah, I believe Rockefeller just clicked over 100, didn't he? So yeah, I'm pretty sure he has been succeeded at this point as chairman of the board, as it were. But by who? I think that's a good question, and I think there's a lot of different candidates that I could put out there, but I'd be very interested to hear your opinions on that one. In terms of the functional, on-the-ground gopher, the, the man who is that nexus of so many different things, the way Rockefeller clearly was as uh, Citibank and all of the things he was involved in and all of the free trade agreement for the Americas and all of the thing I mean, the million things that he was puppeteering and honorary president of Trilateral Commission and Bilderberg Steering Committee and all of that. I mean, who's the, that person in this day and age? I think that's a very good question and one that I'll throw open to you guys. And finally... Finally, uh, Corporate Report member The Will left this on the last QFC. Speaking of history of interesting American cultural developments... 
how about the Peace Corps, a government agency founded in the 1960s that hasn't worked itself out of a job, but has been assimilated into the defense international development industrial complex? So where is it today? Why does it still exist? Who is it really serving? Anyone interested in an open source investigation on this one? Excellent question, The Will. If you or anyone else has anything more to add to that, please contribute to that. I'd love to see your comments. So again, please leave those comments. CorbettReport.com members can log into CorbettReport.com and leave your comments and or questions for the next QFC on this post at CorbettReport.com. As I say, you can tweet or email or speak pipe or leave a video message. Lots of different ways to get your questions in. I do appreciate them. I tried my best to make this under an hour, but I think it's gone over. So once again, thank you for your patience with all of this. As I'm sure you can appreciate, a ton of research goes into all of the Corbett Report podcasts, interviews, episodes, videos, including these QFC episodes, as attested to by the mile-long show notes list for each one of these episodes. If you do appreciate this research, if you do get something out of it, please do support it. I rely on your support to literally keep the lights on here. So a subscription of as little as $1 a month does help to fund this media and make it possible. Thank you to all of you out there. This is James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, recovering from my recent bout of ill health and uh, looking forward to talking to you again very soon. The Corbett Report is brought to you by The Corbett Report subscriber. A weekly newsletter featuring James Corbett's International Forecaster Editorial, recommended reading and viewing, discounts on Corbett Report DVDs, and once a month, a subscriber-only video. Sign up today to start receiving your copy at corbettreport.com support. 